you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We will be considering the first five or first 11 verses, excuse me, of this chapter. Now, I do want to take just a moment and welcome you, especially if you are visiting with us. We're so glad to have you this morning. It's good to see you, and we hope that you are fed by the Lord during this time. We have been studying, been walking through the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're nearing the end of this letter as we anticipate um, going into the second. And what we find in chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 is, is Paul goes into this mini-series on ethics. Um, he addresses four ethical issues that the church... Fourth of those issues. We began with the topic of sexual morality. Then we turned to brotherly love. Last week, we spoke on the topic of having hope in light of death. And this morning, we will conclude on how to be prepared for the return of Christ. And this fourth issue was one of particular interest to Paul and to the church. We've titled this series living in light of Jesus' return due to the frequency with which Paul brings this topic up again and again and again in this letter and in his second letter to the church. And so we believe that because he does this, it's important for us to have proper understanding on this teaching on how to live in light of a coming Jesus. With that in mind, I invite you to turn with me to our text so that we can hear Paul's word for us this morning. I'll begin in verse 1. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are doing. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let us go to him now in prayer and ask his blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, what words of promise and comfort we find in this passage. What words of hope and what words that should spur us to action. And we pray, Lord, that through your spirit you would call us to these things that you would call us 
to be sober-minded and awake, for the day of the Lord is coming, and it is coming soon. And may we prepare as people who are joyous and ready for its coming. May we not grope around in the dark as those who are blind, but may we live as children of the light. We ask your blessing upon this time and on the reading and hearing of your word. In Christ Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. In Calvin's Institutes, it's around chapter 9, he gives us much wisdom on the Christian life and looking forward to its coming. He says this, Whatever be the kind of tribulation with which we are afflicted, we should always consider the end of it to be that we to train and despise the present and thereby stimulated to aspire to future life. For since God well knows how strongly we are inclined by nature to a slavish love of this world, in order to prevent us from clinging too strongly to it, he employs the fittest reason for calling us back and shaking us off our lethargy. Every one of us, indeed, would be thought to aspire and aim at heavenly immortality during the course of our lives. Then he continues, in short, the whole soul, ensnared by the allurements of the flesh, seek its happiness here on earth. To meet this disease, the Lord makes his people sensible of the vanity of the present life by a constant proof of all of its miseries. Calvin boldly challenges us in our thinking here. He's saying that while Christians often look forward to the life to come, we're sadly often ensnared by the pleasant realities that we find around us or what seems to be present as much. We get a glimmer in our eye for the world and a taste for the things of the world. So much so that, and it's very dangerous, that we start looking like the world. And one of God's greatest mercies is that he brings trials and tribulations to awaken us and to shake us from that false sense of security and that false sense of happiness and that false sense of joy. And what he's doing when he does that is to show us, is to remind us, is to call us back to home. Is to send us home. Is to put our hearts and our minds and our attention and our attitudes there. It's because when we live with a mindset toward there, when we look with a hope toward there, when we look there, we rightly live our lives now. And that's exactly what Paul is saying for us in our text this morning. Live as if Christ is coming back. Don't become ensnared by the world. Don't live with false hope. Live in light of a risen king. And he gives us clear instruction on how to do that. For this is a difficult thing to do. This is not something that is simple. This is not something that in one sense we can simply go, here's what you do and then you do it. No, this will be a struggle for us. And yet... The text is clear. The answer is simple. And so I challenge each one of us this morning to grow in our understanding and to boldly live this out in our lives. To do that, we'll see four sections in our text that call us to heavenly living. First, Jesus will return in his time. We see that in the first three verses. Secondly, the best preparation for Jesus' return is godliness. We find that in verses 4 through 8. Thirdly, 
Paul will show us the greatest treasure we can receive is life with Christ in 9 and 10. And then finally, we will conclude with the call to encourage one another with these truths in verse 11. Let's walk through our text going back to verse 1 and realizing that Jesus will return in his time. And we find ourselves beginning with familiar words in our passage. If you've been with us, you've heard them before. Three out of the four ethical issues that Paul gives, he begins with these words. Not words of newness, but words of, we've already talked about this. It's not that I'm telling you something you don't know. I'm reminding you of truths that you've already had proclaimed to you. He says this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware. This would mean one of two things. Either Paul has directly instructed the church on what to do in the return of Christ and how to live for that, or he's directed them to and pointed them to the scriptures, which clearly teach on the return of Christ and how to live as if that's coming. I believe it's not an either or. I believe it's a both and. I think that Paul has taught on this topic to the church. And I believe that Paul has brought them to the scriptures to further build them up in this matter. But we have to admit something here. He does have to bring it up again. He does have to tell them again. And isn't that the human condition? Sometimes knowing what is right is not enough. We need to be reminded. We need to be told multiple times. No, this is what is right. You know what to do, but here's what it is in case it slipped your mind. This is the truth. Live in light of this truth. It's why we should never grow weary of sharing the gospel. The gospel should never become too familiar for us, believer and unbeliever alike. Because we need that reminder. And Paul, even saying this again, gives us that reminder. Don't grow weary of hearing God's word and the truth found there. In verse 2, Paul gives us his reasoning. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in a night or in the night. It will come. It's going to happen. It is certain. And it will do so as a thief in the night, unexpected, seemingly unplanned, would be one way to look at it, at least from our perspective. Both Matthew and Luke record in their Gospels Jesus using this very language to describe his own return. And this gives credence to the fact that Paul was likely pointing the church to other places in Scripture. For this is a topic that has been addressed and what does Jesus say in these passages? Be ready. Be alert. Be awake. Be prepared. Man will not know when he will return. But God does. It is fixed. It is certain. It will happen in his timing. Do not be surprised by it, dear church. And so on the one hand, we have to recognize that we will not know that day and that hour but then on the other hand, when it does happen, it should not catch us off guard. We should live every day. We should live every moment as if this could be it. While people are saying there is peace and security, suddenly destruction will come upon them. 
as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The stories that we've, I'm sure we've all heard of children being born in taxi cabs in the back seats of cars should remind us, should make this very real. Just as much for those of you um, ladies who have given birth to children, you know labor pains can come on quickly and unexpectedly. It's not like you can really decide now is the time. It will happen today. I plan this. You might be able to, but for a lot of the times it is God's timing, isn't it? That date, that hour, this moment, in these circumstances, and then God shakes it up because that is what God does. Same as when he will return. It will come upon us, and once it starts, it will go to completion. People will be sitting around saying, I have peace, I have security, and then he will return. One of the reasons I believe that Paul writes this is not only to instruct the church, but it's also to curb them from trying to guess. There was a lot of guessing going on, and we know that from what has been written um, to this point uh, from his letter and what he will continue to write in his second letter. A lot of people were just sitting around, not doing much of anything else other than trying to guess when Jesus would come back. All the way back to the biblical account, we look at people that do that nowadays that will unlock some hidden code, you know, from the book of Habakkuk or from the Exodus. And it's, oh, it's these numbers translated in this way. What's fascinating to me about that, and, and I, I love fiction and, and things like the Da Vinci Code are definitely fiction. They always do it from the English. They never do it from the Hebrew and Greek in the original language that it was actually written in. Um, and so their code couldn't be right. That one's for free. But people love to try and guess when he'll come back, and they love to try to pick things apart and come up with a definitive answer. <clears throat> but what Paul is doing here is saying you can't do that. And he's getting at the heart of more, more than just trying to guess. Paul is insinuating here what it really is is mistrust. It's mistrust in God. That God knows best. That God will prepare us. That God will lay it out for us. That God will set everything up and that God will see it through. It, at the heart of it really comes down to us saying, I hear you God, but I think I could do it better. I think if I knew when you would come, I think if I knew that day I could prepare my family better. I could prepare the community better. I could prepare myself better. I can do better God. And that's really what we're saying, isn't it? And we have to be very careful of that. There is a sense in which we very much want to be excited and looking forward to this coming. And we're going to talk about that even more. But there's another sense. We have to be very careful that that doesn't overwhelm our thinking to the point that we do nothing else. That we consider nothing else. That we worry about nothing else. For it can overwhelm us. It can put us in a place of complacency. It can paralyze people in the church. We've seen this already in Paul's letter, haven't we? Telling people that you've got to go to work. Jesus is coming back, but you've got to go to work. Do not be a sluggard. No, work like the ant. And I love how Paul does this. Paul, in his first three verses, gives us his don't. Jesus is coming in his time. Don't try to guess it. 
don't worry, God's in control. But then he goes into, okay, so what do you do? How do we replace that? He doesn't just leave us with unanswered questions. He goes into answers. Look with me at verses 4 through 8, and we will see that his answer, what should you do? You should pursue godliness. We see that in our text. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, with, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 1 through 5. Jesus is described as the light of the world. He is described as the word. And here forward, we're going to get this play on words, this contrast of light and darkness, of awake and asleep, of sobriety and drunkenness. And every time we need to see that as this contrast between light and darkness, between God and the world, between Jesus and Satan, and he makes a very clear picture here. And we could go to other places other than John, but I love how John states it. But Paul tells us, you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. Sometimes darkness can also represent fear. And we're not to live in fear. We're not to fear Jesus' return. We're not to fear that second coming, but we're to live in hope. We're to live in anticipation. We're to live awake. For us as believers, this will be a day of joy, and this will be a day of gladness. Ultimately, what I believe Paul is saying here is live like Jesus lived. Hope like Jesus hoped. Walk like Jesus walked. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. People of the light live in the day. They are awake and they are sober. It's the people of night who are sleep-filled and drunk. And Paul is making this comparison here between the people of the God and people of the world, as I just said. He's saying we must not live like those people. We must not stagger around as if we have no understanding. We must not just lie there with nothing to do because God has given us his word. God has given us his truths and God has called us to a task. He's called us to be alive. And I think that this is a very important reminder for us and for the world today. We should not look like the world. We should not live like the world. As different as night is today, as awake is to asleep, that's how we should look. And that's how we should live. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober. And then here, he tells us something beautiful. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. How does Paul say to do it? How does Paul say to live as people of the light? How does Paul say to be alert and to be sober? How does Paul say to wake up 
and be active in our lives, he says when you get up, you put on the armor of God. You put on the armor of God. And let me ask you something. Does one put on armor and not expecting to go to battle? No. You put on armor because you know there will be a battle. You put on armor carefully. I love the medieval time period. And I love medieval reenactments and, and people who do those in modern time. Let me tell you something. Putting on armor was an arduous process. It was very slow. You needed help. And it was heavy. And it was sometimes complicated to get around and move around. But at the same time, you were glad you had it. For your life may come at stake. And when you were carrying around that extra weight and you were limited in your movement, you were glad that that arrow bounced off the curvature of the breastplate. You were glad for that extra piece of chain mail around your throat. You were glad for the small slits in your helmet. It's expertly designed. It's perfectly crafted for its intended purpose. The same goes for us here. The breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. If we went to Ephesians 6, the shield and the sword, the feet willing and ready to spread the good news. All of it working together, perfectly crafted to prepare us for that day coming. And more than that, not just that day coming, but that day today. If it's not the day of the Lord today, that armor will protect you. That armor will see you through. That armor will deflect the attacks of Satan. Because what the armor of God points us to is God's word itself and the Holy Spirit. That's what we need. That's how we need to live. We need to live putting on the armor of God, ready to go to battle and saying, today could be the day. But if not, if it's not the day, Lord, help me through it. Give me exactly what is needed Get me just to the end. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And until Christ returns to make us new, please do not miss that God always gives you what you need for that day. If you spend your time focusing on that task, then you will find your plate full enough if you really put on the armor of God expecting spiritual battle and you engage in that battle, I dare say it'll be one of those times for a, a lot of us that we find ourselves at home and it's, where has it gone? It's been thing after thing and, and you, I know a lot of you know this feeling. We find ourselves at the end, God, you kept me through for another one. You haven't come back yet. I believe you're going to take me with you. Your word promises it. And so I guess we're doing this again tomorrow. We start preparing, we start planning, and we keep on trusting that armor to get us through. So what is God calling us to do? How is he calling us to live until he returns back? He's calling us to live like Christ. Pursue godliness now. Faith, love, hope, the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, feet ready to prepare the good news. Who does that remind us of? Jesus. It reminds us of Jesus himself. Everything that God calls us to holiness, we see in our Savior. That's how we're to live. That's what we're to look forward to. And that's enough. 
That's enough. And what's so beautiful about that, calling us to live like Jesus, calling us to live in godliness, not only is that our command, just like last week, where we saw that Jesus is our example and he's our savior, we see the same this week. Jesus is what we're, how we're supposed to live and he's the reward for living how we're supposed to live. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 and see that he is the reward. And I find these verses some of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture. For what Paul says here cuts to our hearts, at least it should. In our soberness, soberly minded, fully awake, children of the light, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or we are asleep, we might live with him. God has not destined us for wrath. We who are in Christ will not face wrath on the day of judgment. There will be nothing to judge. Jesus has paid for all of our sins. I don't know if we always appreciate the gravity of that. All of them. The sins that we commit openly and willingly. The sins that we commit in secret. The sins that are so common to us, we don't even realize that we're doing them. All of those sins will be forgiven if you're resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. Jesus pays our debt in full. This is why we shouldn't fear Christ's return. This is why we should not be worried about it. Because when it comes, it will be a day of celebration. It will be a day of reward. It will be a day of praise unto God for what he has done for your life. Not one to fear. Not one to worry about. Not one to live anxiously for. But one to expect with celebration. And how is it possible? Listen to some of the most powerful words I can give you. Jesus Christ died for us. Jesus Christ died. Died for us. You and I fully deserve wrath and death and pain and punishment. God's law states disobedience of one line is deserved. Eternal punishment and eternal wrath. And yet, if we trust in him by faith, then we are declared righteous, forgiven, children of God. Not because God simply waves his hand and makes it go away. No, he made the payment himself. He killed his innocent son so the guilty might go free. So that, so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. I will admit, I don't even know if I can rightly convey the importance of those words. Our reward is eternity with Christ. That's what we look forward to. That's why we long for his return. That's why for many of us, it's not fear, it's joy that we still find ourselves going, 
I wonder when it's going to be. Is it going to be today? And we find ourselves trying to guess. In some sense, there's a rightness to that because we know that we will spend eternity with him when he comes. But it's more beautiful than that, y'all. It is far, far more beautiful than that. Because if you're a child of God, covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, then you're with him now, today, right here, as we speak. You are with Christ now. You will never be less with the Savior than you are today. And if the Lord gives us tomorrow, then let's celebrate because we're one day closer to fully realizing that. But here's something else that Christians really don't appreciate. You are forgiven now. You are alive now. You are of the light now. You are children who are awake now, right now. And I think that Paul wants us to see this. I think Paul needs us to see this. Because many will find themselves looking forward to something that they already have in front of them. They find themselves longing for something that's already happening. They become so fixated on what's ahead, they don't realize what they have right here. I cannot tell you anything more wonderful than that this morning. I cannot declare a message more beautiful than this right here. For this is the gospel. Don't sit around and wait for it to happen. Live in it today. For he has risen and you have been bought. If you are a child of God, you're simply waiting the homecoming. That does not diminish your status one bit. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't consider our sin and work with all of his strength to rid ourselves of sinful practice. For we are called to be holy. What did we just say in our previous text? The way to live in light of Jesus' return is godliness. And godliness is a high standard. But what I'm saying is we do ourselves a disservice when we walk around as if we're not victors of the greatest cosmic battle of all eternity. Christians should be the most excited, the most hopeful, the most loving people bar none. This is why Paul writes with the passion that he does to the church. God's word tells us we have a reward like no other already in our possession and it only gets better from here. So live like it. Act like it. Now I have to say that if you are not in Christ, if you are hearing this this morning and this is not your hope, you are not resting in the finished work of Jesus, you should absolutely fear his coming. It should fill you with dread and with terror. Because what are you going to give on the day of judgment? What are you going to stand before the almighty God, the one who was not willing to spare his own son and offer to him to cause him to set aside his wrath? Nothing. And so I plead with you, I plead with you, if you are hearing this and you do not rest in this and you do not hope in this and you do not trust in this, to repent and repent now. Because let me be very honest, today could be the day. I don't know, but it very well could be. This brings us to our final verse, and it's an important one. 
It's one Paul has already written in this chapter, or the previous chapter, and it's one we need to hear again. It's very, very critical for the church that we get to verse 11. Because everything I have said, I pray is true. And if that's the case, then this is vital. Look with me at our last verse as we see our, our response and our need of action. Remember that Paul is writing this letter to the church to be read, to be disseminated. He's writing it in such a way that it was to be shared. That this was to answer questions that was specifically being had by the church. That he was calling them to live a certain way. That he was calling them to act a certain way. And to that end, and with everything he said, he gives us this. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. In light of Christ's return, in light of the call to godliness, in light of Christ as our reward, build one another up and encourage one another. This means speak to other people about these matters. This means study God's word. Look for what he says on these topics and on these truths. This means wrestle with hard passages. This means digging deep together. This means praying to God, asking for understanding. And not doing it just on your own. This was his desire for them. And this is his desire for us. Christ is coming back and will do so soon. Some of us will see death before that day takes place, if not all of us. But whether we live or we sleep, we do so in Christ. Because of that, we should not be worried as those who drunkenly walk around in the dark, for we are children of the light. Paul's call on this matter, he gives it to the whole church. Make no mistake, this was not just to the leadership, this was not just to a few members, this was to be read by the whole church and then passed on to other churches. Speak of these matters publicly, often. And then share it as you have a chance. This is what Paul is calling all of us to here today. Our greatest calling is to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Closely related. And Jesus goes so far as to say on these rest all the law and the commandments. Is to love our neighbor as ourself. Love God and love our neighbor. How do we love them? By sharing the gospel and by teaching them and preparing them for the day of his return. This is who we are to be as a church. This is what we are to be about. And as we have opportunity to do that in a multitude of ways, I pray that we always come back here. For that day will come. Time, time we have right now it so seems, but it could go as quick as a thief in the night. As quick as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. We are called to live as the Lord has commanded us both in word and in deed. Our ultimate treasure is Christ himself which you can have now. And if you are resting in him you do have now. And you will have even more fully when that day comes. This must change how the world sees us. 
We must be markedly different than the world. We must not live in fear. We must not live without hope in death and life and looking forward to his coming and brotherly love and other matters of ethics. We should be different because God is different. He calls us to be like him. And if we do that, if we seek these things, if we follow these commands, we will be prepared on that day. That's how, brothers and sisters, we get ready for the return of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I find this eminently and greatly encouraging and exciting. May we not grow weary of sharing these truths with each other and with any we come in contact with in the world. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you come quickly, O Lord, that you send your Son soon. There's a lot of heartache and a lot of sadness and a lot of wickedness in the world. We turn on the news and we see it daily, hourly, and it feels like it's getting worse and worse. And so we ask that you would come swiftly, that you would wipe away sin and sorrow and wickedness and hurting, that you would make all things new. Lord, I pray that all who hear you this morning are resting and trusting in you for their salvation. For on that day, it will be a day of joy for those who are in Christ. But for those who are not, it will be a day of judgment. And Lord, may we not wear ourselves out trying to guess on when it will take place. It will come in your time. But at the same time, may we live with expectant excitement and diligence until it does. Help us put on our armor each day that we might fight the fight you have called us to fight. Help us to rid sin in our lives and to seek the opportunities to do good to all those who come around us. In doing so, may you make us vessels for sharing the gospel. For chiefly, that is our concern. And may we never forget and may we never take for granted that we who are in Christ are in Christ today. And we look forward to that being seen more fully in the days to come. We thank you for this word, O oh Lord. We trust it will be enough for us. Be with us this week. Help us to live this out in Jesus' name. Amen.